I wanted to start this sermon out with a, an imaginary scenario if you guys are up for it. Is it too early for one of these? All right, brace yourselves. Let's do it. What if on one of our trips to Zimbabwe, Cornerstone's missionaries found the actual cross that Jesus died on? Like, I'm serious. Say, when Jordan's car broke down, and he's standing outside his car trying to figure out what he's doing, he looks over and sees, like, the top of a wooden beam sticking out of the dirt. He digs it up, finds a cross, is like, whoa. And then an archaeological team comes and verifies through DNA that this was the very cross that Jesus died on. And say, since he found it, they tell him he gets to keep it. And so he brings it back to Leavenworth. What if standing right behind me was the very instrument on which God incarnate died? Can you imagine that? What if you could see the holes where his hands and feet were pierced? What if you could see the stains on it of the blood that he shed for the forgiveness of our sins? Would that be meaningful to you? Would that be a precious thing? I went to the Middle East a couple years ago with Ash and two of our kids, and I just remember going, they were doing an archaeological dig site at the place where they believed Jesus was baptized, and just putting my hand in that water, it did something. I mean, I'm not talking, it wasn't a pilgrimage, there's nothing sacred about that place, but it made it so real for me. I just started weeping. Can you even imagine putting your hand on the cross that you know Jesus died on for you? I think it would be a really powerful thing. I think that it would instantly communicate to me the presence of God and the weight of what he's done for us. Anyone else? Would it mean something to you? Would it be precious to you? After that initial emotional encounter, though, do you think the cross might become a point of pride for us? Like you're talking to a buddy and you're thinking, cool, man, your church has a movie theater. Our church only has the cross that Jesus died on. Apples and crosses, I guess. I don't. Would it start to become a source of pride for us? Would it, or do you think it would, maybe start to give us a false sense of confidence? Money's tight, but our church will be fine. I mean, we have the cross. The culture is spiraling, but that cross reminds me that all is not lost. Um, I'll be honest, come hell or high water, I think it would looking at it in and of itself it couldn't do anything for me but looking at it i think it would give me a sense of calm and certainty it would remind me of truths that i am so prone to forget when i'm distracted by the world around me but now for the real scenario this was all just a setup now now we're at the real place what if a country like iran felt that they were commissioned by allah to bring the world into submission and they invaded United States of America. And they defeated our armies, and they ransacked towns across the country. And knowing that Cornerstone Church in Leavenworth, Washington housed the cross where Jesus died, they came and burnt down the Grange with everything in it. And then had a party outside declaring Allah's victory over Jesus. How would you feel then? And I'm not picking on Muslims, we could have subbed in anything. How would you feel then? Would it feel like a great loss? Would it cause your hope to waver? Would your faith shake a little bit, just wondering, where was God in all this? Why would he allow it? Now Allah seems stronger than Jesus. Couldn't he have stopped it? And if 
any of that resonated with you, then in some small way you understand how Israel felt when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Um, we've been walking through 1 Samuel chapter 4. So far you've seen two acts. Today we'll finish Act 3, but just to recap, here's where we are. <clears throat> act 1, which we saw already, Israel paraded their cause as God's cause. Israel wrongly put their faith in a symbol and the idea of God and not God himself. <clears throat> they wanted to conquer their enemies, and they paraded their desires as if they were God's desires. Uh, that was not smart. Act 2, verses 5 through 11, we saw Israel substituted adrenaline for true faith. Act 2, God's people believed that they were operating in great faith. They were really trusting God. Remember, they lost first to the Philistines, 4,000 men died. The fact that they're willing to even go back and fight again when they know they'll probably lose. We trust you, God. They saw the ark. They erupted in these great shouts that made the ground shake. The Philistines heard it two miles away. Go, God! Sounds righteous. Sounds real. It wasn't. We explored that and saw that their quote-unquote supposed faith was actually artificial. God wasn't with them in this endeavor, and yet they didn't notice his absence. Why not? Because they substituted the presence and power of God for adrenaline and their own emotions. They traded faith for feeling. It was a feeling that just happened to support the cause they were already passionate about. God, with us in this. We're going to do it. It's going to go great. Uh, and their cause ended terribly. 30,000 men died. Israel's priests died. And the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol God gave his people to remind them and communicate his presence to them, was captured by their enemies, the Philistines. And now we're ready for Act 3, which is today. Israel believed that their loss was God's loss. That was the conclusion of that story. And our outline today only has two points. Here they are. Number one, our tragedy. 1 Samuel 4, 12 through 22. Point two, God's triumph. Bear with me here. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, 16. That sounds worse than it is. It sounds like a lot. I promise you, you'll be home in time uh, for dinner. <clears throat> this is the most text I've ever tried to preach in one sermon, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're just going to jump right in. Our tragedy, uh, verses 12 through 22. You already heard them read during our background scripture, uh, so I'm not going to read them again. We're going to break this up into chunks. First, we'll look at verses 12 through 18. You better have a Bible or your phone, because no one can read that except for God alone. Uh, verses 12 through 18. What's happening here? Remember, Israel just got trounced by the Philistines. They just got whooped. And one of their soldiers runs back home to tell everyone about this great loss and what happened, right? In verses 13 and 15, we get this snapshot of Eli. It always helps me to imagine these things playing out with cameras and scenes because then I feel like I understand it better. We get this snapshot of Eli, and at this point, he's 98 years old. He is extremely obese, and he is completely blind, Eli is the poster of strong leadership, right? This is exactly what you imagine in times of crisis. No, <laughs> and that's kind of the point. Men's strength on their own. And he's sitting by the road waiting to hear news of what's going on, and he's understandably anxious. Can you guess why? He's the leader of the nation. They're under attack by a stronger Philistines, and his two sons are out there. So you can get why he would be uh, a little nervous about what transpired, and he's waiting to hear. But the text lets us know that that's not what he's anxious about. Verse 13 says that Eli's heart trembled, feared for the ark of God. Eli's worried about the ark. Is that ark going to make it? Is that ark going to work? Is it going to happen for us? And then instantly the camera cuts back to the soldier. He's running into the town. He's telling people about this great loss. The people are mourning. They're crying. They're brothers, their fathers are dead, and now they're going to be defeated, and what's going to happen to them? Will they be slaves? What does this mean? The ark is gone. 
Eli hears the commotion. He wants to know what's happening. He calls the guy over. The guy runs to him. And then look at verse 16. Eli asks him this, how did it go, my son? Literally in Hebrew, Eli asks, what is the word, my son? And there's layers of significance in this, considering that God had already given Eli a word concerning his sons, that they would die on the same day. And when he heard that news, he should know that God was the one that brought this about. Uh, And I'd love to triple click on that, but we got to keep moving. So we'll keep moving. Verse 17, the soldier tells Eli four things. We were defeated. We lost a lot of men. Your sons are dead. And the ark of God has been captured by the Philistines. And how does Eli take the news? It literally kills him, quite literally. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. And check this out. The text makes a point to highlight that it wasn't news of Israel's defeat or even news of his son's death that did him in. It was news about the ark of God, that the ark of God was captured. And we don't have time to really get into this, but if you wanted to read the scene charitably, it is biblically plausible You can believe that Eli's concern for the ark over the safety of his children, over the nation, uh, it showcases his piety and his concerns for the things of God. You can. It's it's possible. But most commentators uh, go the other direction. That The reason we're told that he was worried about the ark, that news of the ark brought him in, is because just like the people, Eli had misplaced faith in the ark, seeing that it was the ark that safeguarded and protected Israel. And if the ark is gone, God has failed, and they are in big, hot trouble. I was going to use a different word. I'm going to make sure to be worthy of the pulpit today. Anyways, that's what's happening in verses 12 through 18. Verses 19 through 22, and those verses were told about Eli's pregnant daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife. Now she hears that the ark was captured, that the nation was defeated in battle, that her husband, who was the priest, is dead. And now her father-in-law, Eli, who was the judge of Israel for 40 years, he is virtually their president. <clears throat> when he hears that news, he dies. Bad omen. And hearing all that causes her to go into premature labor. And she dies in childbirth, but not before she names her son. <clears throat> and she calls his name Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? Where's the glory? Specifically, where is God's glory? And why would she call him that? She basically tells us in verses 21 through 22, this is my paraphrase, uh, but in her mind, the ark of God was where God was. And if the Philistines now have the ark, what that means is that God's presence, God's power, God's pleasure, all the benefits of having God on your side, God himself has departed or been taken away from Israel and given to the Philistines. The Philistines got our nose, is what she's thinking. You remember uh, in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? <clears throat> the army's trying to figure out why Hitler would even want the Ark of the Covenant. And Marcus Brody, Indy's friend, says, Hitler thinks that an army that carries the Ark will be invis- invincible. Israel thought the same thing. If you're dumb enough to think that you can get God's nose, you're dumb enough to think that that nose means that you have God's power on your side. That's how Israel saw the Ark. That's how the Philistines saw the Ark. And now the Philistines have it. All is lost. What a tragedy. That's what's happening in verses 19 through 22. Now, what can we glean from all of this? You know, I'm going to say hopefully a lot. 
I told you last week that in the ancient world, which is really not that different from the modern world when you think about it, they thought that when two nations fight each other, it's not just the two nations, it's their deities. Or in our day, their ideologies are battling to see who is more powerful. Dagon versus Yahweh, communism versus democracy, right? It's a battle of ideologies and deities, what you value most, whose is more powerful, who will deliver you, who will win out. And the Philistines won. And because they won that battle, they claimed that as a victory of Dagon over Yahweh. And we just flew over those verses 12 through 22. And you can see Israel kind of saw it the same way. That's how they saw it too. And we can laugh at them for thinking this. We really could. But when you boil it down to the bones, we're all prone to that type of thinking. That's why I called this first point our tragedy, not just their tragedy. <clears throat> and if you've been listening to these last few sermons, I know I keep repeating myself. I know I do. But what I'm trying to show y'all, if I just said it all at once, could sound kind of philosophical, could sound kind of heady, and I really, really want y'all to get this, which is why I've been establishing each point with its own sermon and repeating myself all along the way. So let's recap one more time and see what led to this tragedy in four easy steps. I sound like an infomercial. Step one, <clears throat> they worshiped an idea of God and not God himself. If you've been with us, through the beginning of 1 Samuel, all this took place during the time of the judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel was actually far from God. They had abandoned him. They were sinning left and right. And yet, they're still praying. They're still reading and listening to the scriptures. They're still going to the temple. They're still making sacrifices and all the rest. But their hearts are far from God. So if they weren't actually worshiping God, uh, what were they worshiping? They were worshiping an idea of God, not God himself. And their idea of God was just a projection of their own desires. They did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone had a my truth. It's not even just that my truth is greater than God's truth. It's that my truth is God's truth, the God that they worshiped, or at least were worshiping. Uh, he wanted what they wanted. He was passionate about what they were passionate about. He hated who they hated. That was step one. Step two. They paraded their cause as God's cause. Israel had something they wanted to accomplish, and they wanted to believe that God was involved in it, because if God's on your side, you can't lose. So they declared that their cause, their desire, was God's cause and his desire. It's what he wants, too. What a coincidence. And they saw the Ark of the Covenant as a, a way to capture God, the idea of God, a symbol at the very least, a box, not that contains God, but contains and conveys all the benefits of God. If you got that, then you, you got everything. So when God can be domesticated and packaged in this idea or symbol, you can drag that into whatever cause, purpose you want to do. And they could parade their purpose as if it was God's purpose. And they're saying, we want to beat those dirty, nasty Philistines. They're our enemies. They're God's enemies too. Go grab the ark and then we'll for sure win because then God will be with us and he'll be fighting for us and straight victory. So unpack that, and what's happening is they're tying God's glory and God's reputation to their own desires with the hopes of forcing his hand. Um, but they're not after God's glory. They're after their own glory. In a nutshell, they're saying, all right, God, listen, we are in a pickle. We're about to head into this impossible situation, but we really want this to work out. And with you, all things are possible. So we're telling ourselves and the watching world that you are going to come through for us. So don't make us and you look bad. Do your thing, big guy. Take it away. 
They're binding God to what they want to do and saying, your reputation, your glory is on the line. We're believing you're going to come through. It's all on you, God. Pass or fail. That was step two. Step three, <clears throat> they substituted adrenaline for true faith. I told you, God was nowhere near this mess. And yet Israel pursued it with zeal. They went into battle first, lost 4,000 men. And that small failure should have taught them. They should have sought the Lord. And if they did, they would have found out from the Lord who is gracious and kind and ready to forgive. They lost because they were in sin. It was a mercy on God's end to make their first failure very small. 4,000 men isn't small, but comparatively to what's about to happen. Very small. In mercy, God let them eat a little bit, a bite of the fruit of their own folly. They should have sought him, repented, and it all would have went well. Instead, they doubled down. Bring out that ark. And they hyped themselves up, convinced that their adrenaline, their emotions about this cause was true faith, which it wasn't, <clears throat> which led to step four. They believed that their loss was God's loss. What happened? 30,000 men died in this unholy quest. The nation was defeated. Their priests, their religious leader, dead. As if that wasn't bad enough, the ark of God was captured. Hearing that, their judge, their president, their political religious leader, over all of it, Eli, dies in hearing the news. And then the worst omen, his daughter-in-law, who's pregnant, goes into premature birth, names this son Ichabod, which, and explains it basically saying, all is lost, God has failed us. That's basically what she's saying. Israel was convinced that their desire was God's desire. They tied God's glory and his reputation to that kite. And when their cause got smashed in the rocks because God wasn't in it, they were convinced that their loss was God's loss. They also convinced the Philistines that the same was true. God failed. And then they're left asking themselves, where is God's glory? Why did God fail? Where was his power? Couldn't he have done something? God really let us down. Can you guys see all that in the text? Does that make sense? Can you see that progression, how one thing leads to the next? <clears throat> Perfect. I'm setting you up because you know how in math, there are mathematical formulas and they prove true no matter what you plug into them, right? Take the Pythagorean theorem. A squared plus B squared equals? Does it matter what size the triangle is? If A is 10 and B is 10, C will be 100. But what if A is 20 and C is you see what I'm saying? The formula proves true no matter what you plug into it. In the same way, um, what I'm presenting to you guys here is a formula. And it's a formula for spiritual disaster. And I taught it to you using Israel, the Philistines, and the Ark of the Covenant as the variables. But it will work no matter what you plug into this formula. It will work no matter what you plug in. And all along the way, I've been dropping hints and small examples. Uh, but now that you know the full formula, I think you'll be able to see and understand how it plays out in real life. So, if the idea of God in your head is that God is a Republican, or God is a Democrat, or that God has bound himself to the United States in a unique and special way, and we are his people, or that God only wants your health, your wealth, and prosperity, or that God prefers one race over another, or that God just wants us to be happy, even if that means we're sinning, or literally whatever else you want to plug into this formula about God, an idea of God that deviates from who he has revealed himself to be in his scriptures. Even if there are splinters of truth in that, if you do that, this formula will work out perfectly. Uh, 
to our disaster, but it plays out. You will commit to a cause, a desire, a purpose that isn't God's. Things that he never promised you. I'm not talking about just evil things. I'm talking about any things. The results of an election. A a hopeful diagnosis. uh, The sale of a house. A job promotion. um, A cultural issue or literally anything you want to plug into it. Because you want it, you will convince yourself, God wants it too. What a coincidence. And then you will baptize that cause in prayer, with scriptures, without a context promises, right? And then you'll hype yourself and your community up. God's gonna do it, won't he? And you'll see signs, quote unquote, and experience feelings that convince you you're on the right path. Just keep it up. You got this. And you'll tie God's glory and reputation to your cause, thinking, all right, God, I told my unbelieving neighbor that you wouldn't let this happen or that you're gonna, you're gonna make this happen and all eyes are on you. Make it happen, big guy. It's your turn to move. And I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you with almost certainty that this will end in a tragedy where you will experience a loss or great disappointment and you will be convinced that your loss was God's loss too. He failed. And you'll end up like Phineas' wife asking, where is God's glory? You'll assume that God lost, he failed to come through, and now the watching world will be convinced of the same because you paraded this as God's thing. Won't he do it? He promised me. Um, And that really stinks. And this formula works on macro issues, and it works on micro issues, and I'm telling you, it works. And you might be sitting there thinking, I see that, I see it in the text, I've seen people fall for that, but it wouldn't fall for me. Like, not me. I would never fall for that. If that's you, God bless you. You're wrong. You will, I will, because this formula has been working on God's people since the beginning of time. And if you don't believe me, you know how I know that I know? It's the same formula that Satan tries to use on Jesus when he tries to tempt him in the wilderness. Think about it. He takes him to the top of the temple. How is that tempting? First and foremost, (laughs) throw yourself off, Jesus. Hmm, sounds good. No, it's not tempting, it's lunacy. But how is that a temptation? Because look what he does. First, Satan tries to tempt Jesus to cling to an idea of God and not God himself. An idea where God is only trustworthy and only loving when he rescues us from suffering and danger. That's how God proves he loves us. He won't allow us to go through that hard thing. He won't let this happen. He won't. He tries to get Jesus to focus on, cling to an idea of God. God, if God loves you, he won't let suffering or harm come to you. And if God doesn't come through, then does he really love you? Won't he have failed? That's what Satan first starts to do. And then he attaches a cause to that idea. If you are truly God's son, throw yourself from this temple. That's a cause, a purpose from an idea. And that still sounds crazy. So what does Satan do next? He tries to baptize that cause by quoting scripture and parading arcs around it. Didn't he say he will not let his angels, he will send out his angels concerning you and he will not let your foot hit the ground? Didn't he say? If God, if you are truly the son of God, throw yourself. And and really, you'd be proving that God loves you and that he can and all the rest. 
Thankfully, Jesus knows better. He knows that even when God allows us to go through suffering, uh, it in no way detracts from his love or trustworthiness. He tells Satan uh, what I forget to sometimes. You shall not test the Lord your God. And we do. When we put our causes out and say, God, it's up to you now. Make it happen. Everything's right. We're testing. We're testing, falling into the same trap. Do you see that? Can you see how Satan tried to use this same formula on Jesus? And you might be wondering why I'm beating this point to death. It'd be fair. If you haven't pieced it together, I'll tell you. Uh, the reason I've decided to stay in this passage for my last few weeks at Cornerstone is because I think this formula is the most common ditch I see the churches around the country falling into today. There are others, trust me, but I think this is the most common ditch I see churches falling into today. Tying God's glory and reputation to their own causes, their passions, their desires, their hatreds, their fears, baptizing it, in scripture and out of context Bible verses, parading arcs around it, hyping themselves up in their community, God won't he and he won't, and, uh, and it's all downhill from there. And as I leave this place, one of my deepest prayers for Cornerstone is that you would see this trap clearly and with God's help, avoid it completely until you close your doors or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. That's my prayer. But even if you do fall for it, all is not lost. I mean, the good news for the Israelites and the good news for us is that this wasn't the end of their story. Acts 2 and 3 end in tragedy, right? Believing that their defeat was God's defeat, the curtain closes with sad music in these questions. Where is God's glory? Why was God defeated by the Philistines? Why did God fail us? And I read a line this week that hits the nail on the head. I hope it conveys, sometimes God allows in his wisdom what he could have prevented by his power. Read that one more time. Sometimes God allows in his wisdom what he could prevent by his power. It's not a question of could he, couldn't he. It's a question of he has reasons you may never know, never understand. And in his wisdom, God allowed Israel to eat the fruit of their own folly, even allowed the Philistines to capture the ark, which convinces them, like, we got God's nose, Dagon's better than Yahweh, party it up. But this was Israel's tragedy, not God's. I told you last week, God called his shots from decades ago. He knew this would happen. He warned them that this is exactly what would happen. This isn't a failure on God's part. If anything, it proves that he is in total control of the situation. So Israel's wallowing and wondering uh, where God's glory is and why he failed. And what they don't realize is God's about to bring back the ark himself. And he's going to turn their tragedy into triumph. And he's going to do it in such a way he'll use their disaster as a way to demonstrate his glory, not just for them to see, but for the whole world to see. Even when it looks like God has failed, he hasn't. Because he cannot our God can never fail. He only knows how to triumph. And I'm just convinced that if we really believe that, we would never be anxious about anything. Because he only wins. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So we're going to really, really quickly knock out this final point. And honestly, I'm not really even teaching it. I just want to read to you what happens next in like two sentences after that. Uh, point two, God's triumph. 
This is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, 16. And do me a favor. If it's not too weird to you, just close your eyes and listen to this. I want you to imagine this whole scene playing out like a movie. I'm going to read it to you for the message. Hear the word of the Lord. Someone's grieving. Israel's lost. The ark is gone. Woe is us. Where is God's glory? Next verse. Once the Philistines had seized the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod and brought it into the shrine of Dagon and placed it alongside the idol of Dagon. The next morning when the citizens of Ashdod got up, they were shocked to find Dagon toppled from his place, flat on his face before the chest of God. They picked him up and put him back where he belonged. But first thing the next morning, they found him again toppled and flat on his face before the chest of God. Now Dagon's head and arms were broken off, strewn across the entrance. Only his torso was in one piece. That's why even today the priests of Dagon and visitors to his shrine avoid stepping on the threshold. And God was hard on the citizens of Ashdod. He devastated them by hitting them with tumors. This happened in both the towns and the surrounding neighborhoods. He let loose rats among them, jumping from ships there. Rats swarmed all over the city and everyone was deathly afraid. When the leaders of Ashdod saw what was going on, they decided the chest of God of Israel has got to go. We cannot handle this, and neither can our God Dagon. So they called together all the Philistine leaders and put it to them. How can we get rid of this chest of the God of Israel? And the leaders agreed, move it to Gath. So they moved the chest of God of Israel to Gath. But as soon as they moved it there, God came down hard on that city too. It was mass hysteria. He hit them with tumors, and tumors broke out on everyone in the town, young and old. So then they sent the chest of God to Ekron. But as the chest was being brought into that town, the people shouted in protest, you will kill us all by bringing in the chest of God of Israel. So they called all the Philistine leaders together and demanded, get it out of here. This chest of the God of Israel, send it back to where it came from. We are threatened by mass death. For everyone was scared to death when the chest of God showed up. God was already coming down very hard on that place. And those who didn't die were hit with tumors and all over the cities, cries of pain and lament filled the air. After the chest of God had been among the Philistine people for seven months, the Philistine leaders called together their religious professionals, their priests, and their experts of the supernatural for consultation. How can we get rid of this chest of God, get it off our hands without making things worse? Please tell us how. They said, if you're going to send the chest of God back to Israel, don't just dump it on them. Pay compensation and make an offering to God, and then you will be healed. After you're in the clear again, God will let up on you. Why wouldn't he? And what exactly would make for an adequate compensation? Five gold tumors and five gold rats, they said, to match the numbers of the Philistine leaders. And since all of you, leaders and people, suffer this same plague, make replicas of the tumors and rats that are devastating this country and present them as an offering to the glory of the God of Israel. And then maybe he'll ease up on us and not be so hard on you and your God and on your country. Why be stubborn like the Egyptians and Pharaoh? God didn't quit pounding on them until they let the people go, and only then did he let up. So here's what you do. Take a brand new ox cart and two cows that have never been in a harness. Hitch the cows to the ox cart and send their calves back to the barn. Because the cows would follow their calves normally. Put the chest of God on the cart. Secure the gold replica, the tumors and rats that you're offering. And then set it back and send them the, the chest. Send it off, but keep your eyes on it. I love this part. If it heads straight back home to where it came from, towards Beth Shemesh, it's clear that this catastrophe is a divine judgment. But if not, we'll know that God had nothing to do with this and this was all just a coincidence hedging their bets. So that's what they did. Hitched two cows to the cart, put their calves in the barn, placed the chest of God and the sack of gold rats and tumors on the cart, and the cows headed straight for home. Down the road to Beth Shemesh, straying neither left nor right, moving all the way, and the Philistine leaders followed them to the outskirts of Beth Shemesh. The Israelites in Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley. 
And they looked up and saw the chest. Jubilant, they ran out to meet it. The cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemeshai, and stopped there beside a huge boulder. The harvesters tore the cart to pieces. They chopped up the wood and sacrificed the cow as a burnt offering to God. The Levites took charge of the chest of God and the sack containing the gold offerings, placing them on a boulder, offering the sacrifices. Everyone in Beth Shemesh worshiped God most heartily that day. And when the five Philistine leaders saw what they came to see, they returned that same day to Ekron and told everyone what happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Result of Israel's disobedience and their ignorance uh, was tragic, and their story should have ended there. But in mercy, their tragedy set the stage for God's triumph. There's a song that says, uh, with God, Friday's disappointments lead to Sunday's empty tomb. Even when it looks like God is losing, he cannot. He only conquers. And I hope what you glean from this entire ordeal is this. God is not an idea. He's the great I am. And he's more than capable of speaking and fending for himself. Look at those two chapters. How much did Israel contribute to that? Nothing. Not a thing. And if that's true, if God's not an idea, and he's the great I am, who is living and active and involved in this world, uh, if that's true, then it doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter if our culture wants to believe that dogs are monkeys. It doesn't matter if our nation folds and we become the new United States of North Korea. It doesn't matter if every church here is burned to the ground and 99% of professing Christians are now worshiping Barney the dinosaur. Even then, God doesn't need us to fight for his honor because it's not usually his honor that we're fighting for. Not usually. More often than not, it's our own causes and our own purposes, and our own insecurities, and our own fears, and our own passions, and our own hatreds, and our own desires that we are championing, claiming our gods, fueling by our own adrenaline that we call faith, baptizing in Christian jargon, um, and out of context Bible verses. So if you feel like God is losing, if you feel like the darkness is winning, and without your help, the kingdom of God is going down, if like Phineas's wife uh, you're wondering, where is God's glory in these dark and tragic days? Uh, it's my joy to tell you where God's glory is from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sin, after accomplishing our salvation and purchasing us and breaking the chains of sin and death forever, you know what he did? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He's not pacing the throne of heaven. Oh, gosh, and what happens next? And I really hope, and what if they would? And oh, my name, my honor, my reputation. I really let them down. We're tempted to think that the battles we wage on God's behalf uh, demonstrate our great faith. This is for you, God. When actually, it usually just demonstrates the opposite, right? Because great faith, true faith can say this. Come hell or high water, Jesus upholds the world, the universe, by the word of his power without even breaking a sweat. Sometimes God allows in his wisdom what he could have prevented by his power. But that doesn't mean that he failed or he lost. And we would do well to remind ourselves of uh, something Walter Brueggemann taught me. God cannot be captured. 
He cannot be contained. He cannot be assigned or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. He acts in his own way, in his own time, and he cannot be limited in any way by any human agenda. He always acts for his own glory and the good of his people. Amen. Amen. To be sure, we may experience suffering in this life. To be sure, we may experience some losses, but it's my joy to tell you that Jesus already won the war. He declared it as finished, and he sat down in the throne room of heaven, and he promised to build his church and that not even the gates of hell should prevail against it. He promised, and our God never lies. He only knows how to triumph, and in him, we're more than conquerors. Um, That's my word for you today. Let's pray.